Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. We've been talking about how Jesus Christ is able to transform our lives, and it's been, it's been interesting during this season of, of Easter, and now as we start the Pentecost time of year, thinking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and living a Spirit-filled life, these two things, ideas overlap, and we've been noticing that the last several weeks as we've looked at how Jesus Christ has the power to transform our lives. And we've looked at specific things in the book of Ephesians, this New Testament letter, that talks about how he changes us personally, morally, ethically, how he brings about a transformation in our lives, and then how the transformation spills over and begins to affect our relationships. And so how we get along with other people in the church, how we get along with members of our family, particularly husbands and wives. And last week we focused on the transformation that takes place when Jesus Christ Uh, is able to transform a relationship between parents and children and how the Holy Spirit is able to help children honor and obey their mothers and fathers and how fathers in particular can be led of the Spirit to really teach and disciple and train their children as well. But it affects another area of our lives, an area of our lives that, that really demands a lot of our time and attention, and that is our employment where we work and how we work. And, and so God cares about your job. Your work matters to God. And it matters beyond just providing a paycheck, a way for you to pay the bills and take care of your family and provide for them. It matters more than just giving you a sense of identity. I know a lot of us people, we do our jobs and we think, well, if I do my job well, then you know, that means I'm a good person and that means that other people will like me or notice me or, or my success or my accomplishments or my salary or my achievements at my job, my promotions, my uh, responsibilities and authorities that I have from my job. That's an indication of, the, of my worth and my value as a person. And the trouble is, is if you look at your job just to find your identity, who you are, and we've, we've talk, been talking about that this year, who, what is your identity? If you try to find your identity in your job, you'll always be disappointed. You'll always be left uh, feeling empty uh, because your success is short-lived and, and the praise of people is short-lived and money doesn't last and promotions don't last and, and sacrificing for all of those things, you, wind up, you may wind up wrecking all your other relationships. And, and if, you're, if, if, if you base your, your worth on whether or not you succeed or fail, it, it winds up uh, indicating that your, your sense of identity is very shallow and very hollow. Our identity is found in Christ, not in our job performance. That's the critical thing to remember. And, and yes, your job does provide for you, but your job matters to God in, so many, in, in such a deeper, more important way. Your work matters to God because it's a ministry. It's a way to serve Him. And I know every now and then a person will come up to me and says, I, you know, I think God's calling me to serve Him. And usually they're referring to, I think I'm supposed to quit my job, go to Bible college, and then go become a pastor or a missionary or be involved in some kind of volunteer ministry like that. And that's wonderful. I think God does call people that way. I, I responded to a call like that when I was in college. 
And, and, I, and I am praying that God will call and recruit more people into full-time Christian service. But all of us have the opportunity to do God's will and serve Him at our jobs, in our employment, to do the work of God, to do the ministry of God and the, and the tasks, the labor that He's called us to do. You know, whatever it is, whether it's a teacher in school or a doctor in a hospital or digging ditches for a contractor, it doesn't matter whether you're changing tires on a car or you're a farmer and you're milking cows. Whatever it is, we have this opportunity at the work that we've been given to do and called to do to serve Christ and to minister to Him. And that's why our jobs matter to Him. And that's really what the Apostle Paul is trying to challenge us to think about in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 5. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there and let's talk about serving Jesus on the job. And, and I just, I kind of want to throw this out here and say that, you know, many of the folks that are here today are retired and you're saying this message doesn't apply to me. <laughs> and I want to say it still, it still does because you're working and you're serving and you're doing something constructive, I hope, with your life besides just playing golf. You know, something bigger than that. Golf is fine. Nothing wrong with golf. I just want to be sure of that. I don't want the golf lobby to be mad at me about that, okay? But that being said, life is more than just my own entertainment. Life is about serving. Life is about helping. Life is about blessing. Life is about giving. Life is about doing something constructive. Can I remind you that in the Garden of Eden, work was not the curse? Adam and Eve were working before the curse. Before the fall, they had work to do. Work is meaningful. Work is valuable. Work is something that glorifies God. Work is not the problem. Work is not the curse. It's a way to serve God. Now, you may feel cursed by your work. <laughs> I understand that. Okay, I've had jobs like that before too. But that being said, God wants you to understand that your work matters to Him because your, your work is a witness for Jesus Christ. Okay, now how can that be? How can my job be a witness for Jesus Christ? You say, well, that's easy, Pastor. You're a pastor. Your job, of course, is a witness for Jesus. But how is your job as a teacher, as a nurse, as a, you know, a contractor, as a self-employed businessman, consultant, your job as a retiree who volunteers somewhere or serves, how is that a way to serve God? How does that glorify Him? Well, let's look and find out how, because this is the, I'm going to show you the secret, the key to really being able to turn your, your work into a witness, to turn your, your labor into a way to honor God and bring glory to his name. I'd like to show you that today. So here we are in Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And he says, bond servants, and can I just clarify something? If you look at the footnote, the word there is slave, Okay. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart as you would Christ, not only by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Give thanks to God. 
In this passage, Paul talks about slaves and slave owners or masters. And he challenges us to think about this relationship of being, un, being under the authority of others and in the jobs that we're called to do. Now, right away, some of you are, are saying, are you saying the Bible says slavery is okay? That, that the, the Bible condones slavery and, and, and advocates? Is Paul advocating for slavery, that it's something good every now and then when you read in the newspaper or you hear uh, other articles on television or other places, blogs that you might be reading, you'll hear some of the angry atheists that are out in public and, and writing letters and, and writing articles and arguing why the Bibles can't be trusted. And they'll, they'll make fun of things like Noah and the flood and the resurrection of Jesus and miracles and all these things. And they'll even point up something like the Bible says slavery is okay. If you travel to the visitor center, center at the, the Gettysburg National Military Park and run by the Park Service, if you travel to the visitor center there and you go through the displays about the origins, what caused the Civil War, there's a section that talks about slavery, American slavery. And it talks about how there was even a, a sense where Southerners would read the Bible and they said it justified them owning slaves. And, and having slaves as property. And there were northerners who would read, abolitionists who would read the same Bible, and they say the Bible doesn't condone slavery. And the Bible forbids slavery, and the Bible's against slavery. And, and they, they bring out the fact that when you read Scripture, it was easy for the two camps of people who disagreed so vehemently to come up to, with different conclusions and say one said slavery was okay, and the other said, no, slavery is an abomination. It's, it's against God's truth. Well, what is it? Well, I think as you, as you understand the context and background of slavery in the New Testament world, there are several things you and I need to know. One is that nearly one out of three people in the Roman Empire was a slave. So in, in Roman Italy, there, was, there were many, many slaves. And as you got out into the provinces, such as Asia Minor, where Ephesus was located, where Paul was writing this letter to, there's certainly nearly one out of three people in the community were slaves. But the thing is, in that culture, slaves were, were not solely from one race, as in the New World, where all our slaves came from Africa and were, were kidnapped and taken away by force and sold into slavery that way. These were people in the Roman world were prisoners of war. They were people that sold themselves into de to pay debts. Uh, there were infants who had been abandoned by their families and they had been taken and raised and turned into slaves that way. There were other people who occasionally were kidnapped and sold into slavery, but the vast majority were prisoners of war. When the Romans conquered Palestine in the century before Christ's birth, uh, many Jews and many Syrians were captured as prisoners of war and they were imported to Italy and they became slaves there. And they were involved in that. So you got to understand it was not racially motivated. It was not a sense of one race as whites were superior. Europeans are superior to Africans or Asians or something like that. So it's a little different that way. Many of the slaves were highly educated. They were doctors. They were, they were in law enforcement. They were bailiffs in courts. They were teachers. They were accountants. Uh, they were involved in these highly skilled trades. Many of them were very literate. 
and were able to write and read and communicate in that way. And the Romans valued highly educated slaves, whereas in the United States, education was taken away from slaves, it was kept away from slaves, they were, many of them were illiterate, and they were, it was just part of their subjugation and humiliation uh, in order to advance the superiority of the whites. Another thing that's it's very important to recognize too is that owning slaves was considered a social status. It was a sense of superiority in the Roman world. If you owned slaves, you were considered a very powerful person, a very wealthy person. Many of the slaves worked in households, many worked on farms, orchards, and uh, ranches, things like that, and then also in mines. It was very dangerous work. Um, but something in the Roman world that's interesting about slavery is that a person that was a slave could reasonably expect to be emancipated by the time they turned 30 years of age. There was freedom available to them. Whereas in the United States, in Brazil, and other places in the New World, you were a slave forever until you died, unless somebody rescued you. It's important to recognize that the Roman slavery was not racially motivated. Now, that being said, it was very cruel. It was very barbaric. Slaves were treated as people pieces of property, treated like animals, treated like just tools with life in it is what Aristotle said about slavery. A slave was a tool with life in it. And so it was something that was absolutely degrading and humiliating. Many women, many boys were exploited and abused sexually and harmed in that way. And what you have is a culture of of slavery that was endorsed and condoned by the Roman government, sanctioned by the government, regulated by the government, and something that was part of the fiber of everything about the Roman Empire. It was built on slavery. And the thing is, people say, well, how come Paul didn't con condemn slavery in this passage? Why does he just tell the slaves to submit to those who are in authority? Why does he say that? Well, I don't think Paul could envision a world without slavery. And that doesn't mean that he's endorsing it or approving it or condoning it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, he says, if you're a believer and you're a slave, then accept that. But if you have a chance to get your freedom, take it. And then there's this story in the New Testament. It's a beautiful little letter called the letter to a Christian named Philemon. It's one chapter long. And Philemon is a story of this friend of Paul who had a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus left Asia Minor, probably Ephesus, and fled to Italy and found his way to Rome, and he's found by Paul while he's under house arrest. And Paul witnesses to him and shares the gospel with him, and Onesimus becomes a believer and begins growing in his faith, and he's an, a helper, he's an ally who's encouraging and serving and working with Paul. But Paul says, you know what, we need to make things right because I know your master, and he's a friend of mine, and you need to go back home. And so Paul writes the letter to Philemon. And in the middle of that letter, he says, I want you to receive Onesimus back. This is me paraphrasing. I want you to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And if he owes you anything, because Onesimus had probably stolen something, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it back. But I want you to receive him as a brother. You see, in all of this, Paul is actually trying to, to subvert 
the concept of slavery. He can't argue against slavery. Uh, he can't urge the, the slaves to run away and, and be in rebellion to their masters. He can't do that. He can't call on the slave owners to emancipate all their slaves. He can't do that because that would be attacked by the Roman government. He was not for the tyrannical government of Rome. He was not endorsing that, but he tells Christians in chapter 13 of Romans to submit to those that are in authority. And in the same way here, he is telling the slaves, if you're a believer, then serve Christ in your job, no matter how difficult it is. If you get your freedom, take it. But in all of this, make sure you're serving Christ. He also calls out the masters, as you notice in verse 9. He calls them out to change their mind and to yield and serve their servants, their slaves, and to love them. He calls them to do that. He's changing the institution from the inside out so that as the Spirit of God works through the Word of God, the institution crumbles and falls on its own as people begin to change and begin living the life that Christ has called them to do. He wants to transform this and eradicate it from the inside out. Now you might be thinking, okay, that's great. This is talking about slavery and free people and we can see why he's not condoning slavery here. He's calling us to submit under the authorities because you know, it's just it's the world that they lived in. I get that, but why do we need to listen to this? Because I'm not a slave. I live in the United States. 14th Amendment outlawed slavery. There's no slaves here. And uh, maybe you think your children treat you like a slave, and maybe you feel like your boss treats you like a slave, but you're not really a slave and neither am I. So what's the application for us? The application for us in this passage is that this is a reminder that anyone under authority needs to have the right attitude toward those, those who are in authority over them, those who are superior to them. And so think about this. Think about the prisoner in the detention center or jail submitting to the guards and submitting to the warden and doing what they say because that's a person that's lost their freedom, right? Okay. Think about a man or woman who joins, joins the armed forces. <laughs> you lose a lot of freedom when you do that, don't you? Because you're under the authority of your commanding officers. And you voluntarily choose to embrace that and receive it. And so for that period of time while you are in the service of our country, you're saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'll do what you command me to do and I follow your orders and I'm in submission to you yes sir right away but there's this bigger application to any of us that are under authority whether whatever the career we have whatever the jobs we have we're called to serve Christ and submit to those who are in authority over us now how do you turn your ministry how do you turn your job your work into a witness how do you turn your, your labor into something that truly lasts for eternity and brings glory to God? How do you do that? Well, the key is this. The key is to do your work like Jesus is your boss, because he is. He is your boss. Have you ever thought of that, that Jesus is your boss? He is, he's your master. He's your boss at the job. Wherever it is, he's your boss. Now, yeah, there's that jerk supervisor over you. <laughs> There's that, that principle that's really unreasonable. There's the, the foreman that's out to get you. There's the other person that, that, that's you know, part of your team leader and doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah, they're there. 
They're trying to earn their living too. But ultimately, it's Jesus who is your boss. And even if you're self-employed, even if you are in business for yourself, whatever that business is, you still have a boss. I still have a boss, and that boss is Jesus Christ. And so we turn our work into a witness when we remember that Jesus is our boss, and we submit to him, and we follow him. That's what we're called to do. And so look how he says this in this passage. He starts off by saying, bondservants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We're called to obey those that are in authority. If, if, as employees, if we see that Jesus is our boss and we yield to him, what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means is we obey our masters, we obey our bosses, our leaders, our supervisors with respect. We obey them with respect. We do what they say with respect. And he brings this out several ways here. He says, you need to obey your earthly masters, your human masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. And the idea behind that, that sincerity is the, the concept of integrity, that there's no mixed motives, there's no pretense, that you're honest in your dealings, you're working with them, you're submitting to them, and you're following them, and there's no mixed motives as to why you're doing it. You're just trying to do what they've asked you to do. Not so much even to honor them as much as it is to honor Christ. You do it to serve him and to bring glory to his name. So you obey them. You comply with their orders and their directions. You do it with respect. That's the the concept, the idea behind the word fear there. And trembling is is that it should should lead you to a, a sense of, you know, I need to be really careful here. Maybe you feel that little check in your throat or the little knot in your stomach or your hands are getting clammy or maybe you are nervous as you're talking to the boss and you're actually trembling and you, you just feel that because there's a sense of their authority and the sense of their responsibility and the sense of their power over you in that position and you're aware of that and you're trying to respect them in the process and bring glory to the name of Jesus. You do it with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And he clarifies what this serving with respect looks like, not with eye service. This is a word that Paul invented. There's no record of it anywhere in Greek or Roman literature, Jewish literature, anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in secular literature prior to the time that Paul writes this in 50-some A.D., he makes up a word, and the word is that you're just looking, you're just doing your work when somebody's looking at you. And you know what that's like. Oh, boss is coming. Look busy. You know, just kind of <laughs> doing that. You, you, you've all, we've all done that. We've, we've all done that. You know, better, better look busy. Hi, boss. Great day, isn't it? You know, and here I am working, working really hard. The boss is watching. She, she's looking at me. I better, I better look busy. I better be really focused. Have you, have you ever done that? You caught yourself, you were maybe on the computer at work and you flipped and you were just maybe going to buy something, shopping for something, and all of a sudden the boss comes in the room and click and, oh, hi, boss. Yeah, I'm just here doing these reports. You know, you're, you're gabbing at the water fountain. You're, you're talking at the coffee machine. We, we, we all do that. That's part of life. And, and then after a while, you just, you know, you recognize the boss is coming. I better look busy. I'll, I'll see you later you know people do that I mean they've actually done research on that and they find that people do that all the time and it's very exhausting to keep up appearances that you're really looking that you're looking busy and productive when you're not 
And he's saying, don't act that way. Make sure that as you're working and you're serving, you're, you're serving them and you're doing the job even when the boss is not watching. And he says that just to make sure that you understand what this eye service is all about, you're not a people pleaser. You're not just doing it because someone is watching you, but you're doing it even when the boss is not watching you. When you're away on that road trip, when you're out of the office, when everybody else is somewhere at a conference and you're there at the home office doing the work that you're supposed to do, that you're staying focused, you're, you're staying on task, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. That the boss can trust you and count on you. He's saying you do this because of Christ, not because of the boss, because again, your boss might be an idiot or a jerk or sincere but misguided. The point is you do what you do and we do what we do in our jobs for Christ's sake. We work like Jesus is our boss because He is. And so we honor Him on the job that way. You do it as not as bond, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants, as the slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. This is the second characteristic of what it means to truly do your job like Jesus is your boss. And it's not just obeying the boss with proper respect, but it's, it's doing God's will. If you're a Christian, you have to constantly be looking for what is God's will in this situation? And so for most of us, most of the time, God's will is you give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And you do your, what your boss asks you to do because usually they ask you to do things that are honest, right, and true. But what if the boss is asking you to compromise or lie or fudge on a report? or to cheat or lie to your customers? What if the boss is asking you to compromise ethically in some way? What are you supposed to do in that situation? Do you go along and tell the lies and cheat the customers and fudge the reports? What do you do in that situation? Well, this passage is saying you do God's will, which is to be honest and to do it with integrity and to make the appeal to your boss and to the boss and say I can't do it that way we need to do what's right that's dishonest to our customers that's dishonest to our families our shareholders whatever it might be that's hurting them and so submitting to the authority of the boss but also having an attitude that says ultimately Jesus Christ is my boss and I want to do his will So yes, I I honor my boss by obeying him, but ultimately Jesus is my boss, so I do his will. And I want to live for him. Some of us are here today, and you know what I'm talking about, and you're struggling because you recognize that at at Sunday at Littlestown Chapel, you're living for Jesus, and you're doing his work, and you're saying, yes, I want to be a man or woman of integrity and do my job well, but you know tomorrow when you go to work that you're going to be asked to compromise, and you struggle with that because you've been going along with it. And you've been doing the compromises. You've been doing the unethical things at your work. And you need to stop that if Jesus is your boss. You need to be giving your boss a full day's work for the pay that he gives you. You need to do what she's asking you to do. But you do it for Christ's sake and making sure that you're obeying his will. So I can imagine a slave in the Roman world when when the master wants to abuse her and assault her sexually, take advantage of her, having to stand up and say no, and there's consequences of that. I can't let you do that. And there would be a price for that. And I can imagine, you know, someone in that type of oppressive situation having a great difficulty to stand up for what is right, but that's what we're called to do at our jobs because we need to be known as men and women of integrity, not just in theory, but in practice. 
Sometimes the union might be asking you to, to just cut back on your work. You don't need to work as hard as everybody else. But you and I need to stand out and be identified as the people who serve a higher boss. And we do his will and we do his work, even if nobody else does. Because Jesus is our boss. So act like it on the job, because he's our boss. So he says in verse 7, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. He kind of finishes this off, and, and as I'm reading this and studying, I feel like he keeps coming back to the same thing. Do your job with integrity. Show respect. Do your best. Honor Christ. In all that you do, honor Christ. Not just honoring the boss, but do better than that. Honor Christ. Not just working the hours the boss gives. Put your heart into it and do it for Christ. What would Christ want you to do in this situation? Do that. And as he says all this, you do it with a cheerfulness, a willingness as you serve with goodwill, and you're doing it for the Lord and not for man. And at the bottom of all this, there's a third thing that's involved in this idea of as an employee, I am serving Christ on my job. Not only am I trying to obey my boss, and not only am I doing God's will, but there's this idea of I'm looking forward to payday. Payday is described in verse 8. Do you see what it says? Knowing knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. There's payday coming. What am I talking about? Well, hold your place here at Ephesians chapter 6. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is on page 966. If you'd like to use 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Would you read this with me, please? <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, page 966. Let's read it together. Ready? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's payday. There's a judgment seat of Christ. Now, some of you are saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. I thought if I trust Jesus Christ for my salvation, I don't get judged anymore. That's true. Jesus died for you on the cross. He suffered God's judgment for you. He willingly took that so you could be forgiven and accepted into God's family when you trust in him. But as we serve Jesus in this life, there is a day of accounting. There is a performance review at the end of our life. There's an evaluation. Have you served Christ faithfully or not? Because he wants to give rewards to those who have served him faithfully. He wants to be able to say, you've been a good and faithful servant. You've served me well in doing the job that you've called me to do. And so that's what Paul's referring to in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 6. He's saying that we know we're doing this work of, of yielding to our bosses and serving them. We're trying to do the will of God because Jesus is ultimately our boss. Aren't you glad too, by the way, because your earthly boss doesn't know what they're doing, but Jesus does. And you can rest in that, that he will always do what is right and good by you, even if your earthly boss, your earthly master doesn't know what to do. 
There's payday coming. There's payday coming. He will receive from the Lord. He'll receive back. He'll be paid back literally from the Lord for whatever good he's done. This is telling me that every deed will be evaluated and all that has been done good, that honors God, that obeys his will, that brings glory to his name, all that we've done at our work will be honored and blessed by God and rewarded. And it's a reminder that everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what your task is, whether you're flipping burgers at McDonald's or you're flipping houses for a living or whether you're just doing flips at the circus, it doesn't matter. Your job is valuable. God is using you. And he wants you to serve him and bring glory to his name. And he will reward you, even if you don't get that raise or promotion. Even if your fellow employees are telling you to slack off and don't work so hard. Even if you have to remind your boss, look, we've been working for so many days straight, we need to take a break. You're going to run us into the ground. You have to stand up for something like that or stand up to defend what's right, a fellow employee that's being exploited or taken advantage of. When you stand up for that, when you do that, you remember that there's a payday coming. Whatever the job is, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free person, whether you're the employee or whether you're the boss and the manager, there's payday coming. There's an accounting coming. Your final performance review is coming. Have you served Christ with all that you've got or not? What have you done? Now the thing is, is that if Jesus is your boss, this isn't just for employees. Don't be sitting back saying, well, I'm the boss. I can just kind of sit back and say, yeah, you better work harder. Yeah, you're not, you're not towing your, you know, pulling your, your fair share here. You better do what I say because the Bible says you're supposed to obey your master. You're supposed to obey your boss. And as a supervisor, you can sit back and kind of feel pretty good about yourself because Jesus just put everybody under your employment in their place. Except that Paul's not done. And in verse 9, he puts the boss in his place. He tells the supervisor, this is what you need to do. He tells the master, look, you're Christ's slave. You have a master. You're accountable to him and you have to do his will. Look at verse 9. Listen to it. Masters. We could say bosses, supervisors, directors, leaders. Masters, do the same for them, for the slaves. Do the same for your employees. What do you mean by do the same? Treat them with the same kind of respect. Treat them with the same kind of honor. Make sure that you're doing God's will when you ask them to do something. Make sure that you're treating them fairly and make sure that you remember that your payday is coming too. Keep that in your mind as you do your work and you lead these people who are under your authority. Treat them the same way. And then he clarifies, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And because he's in heaven, he sees everything. He knows everything. He's every place present. And he has the right to judge everything that's taking place at your work, on your job, in your school. He has the right to do that. And there is no partiality, no favoritism with him. 
What this means is that those that are the bosses who have that God-given responsibility to lead their employees, they need to do it without any sense of superiority, any sense of entitlement. I'm the boss, I get to do this. I read recently about a guy in Texas, he was in Houston, Texas, he was known as the world's worst boss. And he griped and complained about his employees all the time. He would say, you're all talking too much at the water cooler, get to work. And a lot of bosses say that. But then he would go further and say, you know, there's no birthday celebrations at this plant. There's no celebrating anything. No babies, no birthdays, no graduations, no anniversary, no celebrating anything. If you want to celebrate, you do that on your own time, but you're here to work. You don't talk to other people. You don't gossip about other people. You don't do any of that. And then he even had this one directive that said this. He said, I'm the boss and you're the employees. I cuss and I can cuss all I want, but you can't cuss at all. That's one of the things that distinguishes me from you. You can't cuss whatsoever. You can't use any profanity. I can use all I want because I'm the boss. Now, not that that would ever be in the management clause or the, you know, your contract. I'm allowed to say so many cuss words per day at work. It's not that. But it's just the idea of this was a guy who thought he was so superior and so entitled and so above all his employees. This passage, verse 9, is saying you can't do that because you have somebody in authority over you. You have a master. You have the boss. You have the CEO of the universe who is watching you from heaven. So you can't do whatever you want and think that you're entitled to do it because you're not. You're under his authority. So you lead your people and you direct your people and you run your business and your corporation in a way that truly honors Christ. You do the job that way and you treat your employees that way. You're not entitled and you're not superior to them. You're not. Yes, maybe you invested. Yes, maybe you took risks. Yes, you've worked hard. There's no question. But you have all that you have because of the blessing of God. He's your master. He's your boss. He's your boss. And you need to treat your employees like Jesus is your boss, because he is. Something else, Paul makes it very direct here, and this, was, this flew in the face of the philosophy and um, common cultural understanding of slavery in the ancient world, in the Roman world. He says, you can't use threats to motivate your employees. You can't coerce them. And so he's telling Christian slave owners, Christian masters, you can't beat your, your slaves. You, you, you can't coerce them and threaten them. You can't use violence and intimidation to lead them and do this. And this was, this was like the backbone of the whole slave owner, slave enslaved people's, you know, the, the whole philosophy and structure of it. Of course you use violence and threats and intimidation. Paul says, no, you don't. You can't do that. You're a Christian. You belong to Christ. And you use love. And you use goodwill. And you use humility. And you use service. And the thing is, you can see that after a while, the whole institution of slavery begins to crumble when a person of goodwill truly submits to his authority, Jesus, and he begins to understand, this man is a man like me. This woman is a woman like me, another fellow human being whom Christ died for. Why in the world am I enslaving them? Why am I trying to control them? Why am I treating them like an animal? I need to let them go. I need to compensate and pay them back. 
I need to do this because this is my brother, my sister, and Christ, especially if they were believers. So as you lead your employees, there should be no evidence of threats and intimidation and violence and harshness in your leading them and dealing with them and directing them. I understand you have guidelines for your work and if somebody is not meeting the performance expectations, if they're being dishonest, then yes, you need to reprimand them. There's no question. You may have to fire somebody. But that's very different than yelling and screaming and verbally abusing or physically abusing somebody, which is often what happens at workplaces, even in our country. And so that's not how Christian leaders and bosses are to act. There's to be no partiality as we do our jobs. If you're the boss and you're the leader, you can't play favorites. Why? Because your master in heaven doesn't play favorites. Your leader doesn't play favorites. Your boss doesn't play favorites. And so why would you play favorites? And so we need to treat each employee with dignity and respect and value and honor because they're a fellow human being. And if they're a Christian, they're a brother or sister in Christ. And we need to honor them and respect them that way. Yes, you may sit in the corner office with the big windows and the big leather chair. Maybe that's your place. Maybe you get to call the shots and make the decisions at the board meeting. Maybe you're the one that makes the final say because your signature is on all the checks on payday. And yes, you did put a lot into that business. There's no question. That workplace, you climbed the ladder, you're successful. But ultimately, God gave it to you as a gift. And you need to honor him and bring glory to his name and be a witness through your work by recognizing that Jesus is your boss. And then lastly, you lead knowing that you also have to give an account to your boss. You will give an answer for how you've led the people that are under you at your workplace, how you treated your employees, how you blessed their families, what you did, what you required, how you treated your customers. You'll have to give an answer to Christ for how you did that. And will he say to you, you've done a good job. You've honored me. Or will he say, you used that job just for your own gain. To make yourself, you served yourself. And you didn't serve me. See, the reason why we can do this, the reason why any of this transformation is possible it's because Jesus Christ came to earth and he chose to become our slave. Do you understand that? Have you gotten that? That as we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and now in the chapter 6, we see how Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth, he sacrificed all of that. He laid his glory aside. He laid his superiority aside. He laid his authority aside. He laid all of that aside and he voluntarily came to earth to be our slave. And he humbly served and he endured the suffering of the cross and the beatings and the trial and the mockery and the humiliation. And he did all of that. The Lord, the master of the universe, he did that for you to save you, to rescue you. He gave up all his rights for you. He gave up his life for you. He came to be your slave to save you. And now you and I 
have the privilege of laying down our lives to him and saying, Lord, you bought me out of the slavery of my sin. You bought me out of the shame and guilt. You, you endured the suffering of the cross. You rose from the dead, and you've bought me, and you've made me your very own, and I will gladly, humbly yield myself to you, and I will serve you. And that's what he's calling you and I to do. That's why we can do our jobs even better than we have before. That's why we can do the work that's very difficult and demanding. We can even do it cheerfully in spite of the pain and sacrifice, the lack of sleep, the lack of appreciation, the lack of adequate compensation. I can do that because Christ has given himself and I belong to him and he's my boss and payday's coming. And because payday is coming, I can keep persevering. This hope keeps me working. Keeps me serving. Keeps me giving. Keeps me enduring. Because of what Christ has done for you and for me. So my prayer is that you and I would see our jobs not just as a paycheck, not just as a way to gain status and honor and recognition, something that bolsters and strengthens our sense of identity and worth. I I pray that we would see our jobs as being bigger than that. They are opportunities to minister. They're opportunities to be a witness. Your work is a witness. But it can only be a witness if you recognize that Jesus is your boss. As you're hauling trash, Jesus is your boss. As you're teaching those kids and wiping those runny nose, he's your boss. As you're working in that operating room, he's your boss. As you're helping your clients and you're explaining for the umpteenth time why your product is better than the competitors and helping your people understand, your client and customer understand how to use their product the best they can. As you go through all that and you patiently explain it again and you field those phone calls, as you work and travel all those miles, as you do all that work, as you get up so early and drive so long for that commute, as you're doing that, you're serving Christ and it's worth it. Even if you never get that pay raise that you deserve. Even if they overlook you for the promotion. Even if right now you're waiting and wondering, where's my next job going to come from? Jesus is your boss. So serve him. And he will provide for you and he will care for you and he will lead you. And payday is coming. Don't forget that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Many of us have jobs that we delight in and are so thankful for the privilege of being able to do the work you've called us to do. But many of us have jobs or had jobs that are horrible, they're difficult, they're painful, and we wish we could get out of them. Some of us are wondering where our next job is going to come from, and we need you to provide, and we trust you for that. But Lord, in all this, help us to see that we are your servants. Paul called himself a servant, a slave of Christ. And certainly, that's what I am. That's what we are. We are your slaves. So, Holy Master, who gave himself for us. Holy Master, Holy Boss, help us serve you and do the work 
that we have for your glory and to bring honor and praise to your name. Help us to do this, Father, keeping an eye on the fact that payday is coming. May we honor you each day on our jobs. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.